The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Ever wondered how a book gets made into a movie? Or how to master the art of cooking? Either way, we've got you covered with the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast. I'm Alan Nevins, a literary agent and talent manager. And I'm Joey Santos, a columnist and celebrity chef. On our podcast, we're going to be serving you a fresh perspective of the entertainment industry alongside our favorite celebrity guests. As we like to say, we don't dish, we serve. Listen and follow Two Guys from Hollywood on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll talk at you soon. Hey everyone, it's Michelle Williams, and I love being able to share my story with you on my podcast, Checking In with Michelle Williams, where my guests and I, we get real as we share the ups and downs of our mental health journeys, and I'd love for you to join me. Hey, it's going to be your church and your turn up. So listen to Checking In with Michelle Williams every Tuesday, a part of the Black Effect on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, everyone, would like to welcome a very special guest to the show, Dylan Fratelli of the PGA Tour. Dylan, thank you uh, so much for, uh, you know, for lending some of your time to us. You guys are about to play the Houston Open. Are you already there uh, on site this week? Um, I'm actually in Austin at home right now. I've chosen to take the week off, but I'll be prepping for the two events in Asia. So I've got to leave on Saturday and get there. That's why I had to pull out of the Houston Open, sadly. Okay. All right. Well, uh, well, there we go. I mean, that's, that's actually, uh, the first thing I wanted to talk to you about was the travel when, uh, when Tom Hoagie and Joel Damon were on the show, they basically, the, the, some of the best stories we've had were them talking about, you know, just all of the traveling that they had to do on the smaller golf tours, but your experience was a little different because you played on the challenge tour. So, so what is life like on the, you know, the smaller tours over in Europe? Is it just as crazy with the travel? It's it's probably the craziest travel out of any of the world tours. The main European tour travels a, a lot of miles and crosses continents, but the Challenge Tour, which is uh, the lower leagues of the European tour, goes across smaller, I guess, smaller regions of Europe and really far-flung spaces within Europe. So you'd fly into a nice big airport and then have to drive two, three hours out into the wilderness pretty much and go into random small towns. So the travel's a whole lot more difficult than anything I've experienced on the main European tour or on the PGA tour, I would say. Yeah. So like the, you know, the U S tour pros, they can pretty much, you know, the, the event gets done on a Sunday and they can probably hop in a car and drive wherever they need to go. But I mean, there were probably places that you played in Europe where like, I mean, the only way to get there, I would imagine was like by train for some of these places. Yeah. I've done many trips, like even from Austria down into Italy, just catching a train because it's the most direct, route it's easier than driving an hour to an airport and then from that airport or from your destination airport to the next one could be another two-hour drive so you just catch a train from big city to big city and then rent a car and only drive the hour hour and a half but it's a it's a really interesting thing traveling Europe. i mean i knew nothing about the place before i went there and learned a bunch of tricks from fellow players fellow caddies and and guys that have done it before 
So when you when you got done playing golf at uh, at UT Austin, like kind of what was the what was your your thinking your your process decision of okay, I want to try and play on the Web Tour or I want to try and play on the European Tour. Why is it that you chose uh, playing over in Europe? It was a necessity thing, I guess. I, I turned pro in 2012 in June and went to tour school in the US and in Europe, and obviously needed somewhere to play so I could earn a living and make some money and. I managed to get through the final stage of European Tour Q school and just missed out on the main European Tour card and had that access into the Challenge Tour, as it's still called, and managed to play there for, I guess, three seasons before I graduated onto the main tour. But it was just a necessity thing. I had the option to play in tournaments there. There was some prize money on the line, and I also had a card in South Africa on the Sunshine Tour, so I gravitated back towards that European and South African side just out of earning a living, I guess. I'd love to have stayed in America and right. went straight to the PGA Tour, but sadly I didn't get any exemptions into tournaments. I didn't get any invites. So I had to basically earn my way and probably go through something similar to a farm system in baseball, having to prove my way through each each level of pro golf. Was there was there ever a time on the Challenge Tour where you were just like, man, this is this is too much. This it's just I, you know my game doesn't feel in the right place because uh, Joel, when he was on the show, basically said there was a time when he was playing on not even the Web Tour but the McKenzie Tour uh, that he was just like he he had just about quit. There were multiple times. I mean, it's not just one time. It was probably one or two major times where I actually thought about thought about going back to school, getting an MBA and studying a little more and maybe then coming back to the game. But I went through a slump in 2014 and into 2015 where I was playing terribly and really had to look deep and figure out, hey, do I really want to be doing this? I know I could make a decent amount of money in business. I have a good enough network and I'm smart enough to, to go into business. But I just figured, you know, I've got to give this a full run. I've got to work hard. I've got to put in the effort, which I've been putting in the effort. It just wasn't smart smart effort it was uh, practicing and putting the hours in but I didn't really know what I was doing and I didn't really reflect on it and try and get better in every single aspect so I really dug deep in that sort of 20 end of 2013 and into 2014 not a very good stage but out of 2014 into 15 was a, was a huge learning curve for me and something that I'm glad I went through early on in my career because I persevered through that now and I know the signs of hey this isn't going right I can and figure out what what I'm doing wrong or try and troubleshoot before those problems become I guess evident in the output in your, in your game and what you're doing week in and week out so what what was that change in your game did you did you start working with a like a new coach or did you have like I know some guys on tour are working with like specific like analytics companies to figure out okay like this part of my game is really bad it's costing me strokes I got to work on this so for me, the, the the major factor that caused the slump was just playing too much golf. I'd been over in Europe my first year in 13 and played, I think, 23 or 24 Challenge Tour events and another eight Sunshine Tour events. So I was over there in Europe, didn't come back to South Africa for six months, came back to the States once in an eight-month eight month period. So I figured I was just going tournament to tournament. And, oh, I can practice on the road while I'm at tournaments. But mm-hmm. tournament golf is totally different to logging the hours back home where you can spend two, three hours on the range honing your skill, honing your technique, and obviously working with a coach to oversee things. So I just thought, no, I've got to move to the next level, which means I have to win the challenge to finish in the top 15 and then move up to the European tour. And I just figured, I'm just going to play as much as I can and I'll get it done. But by the end of that first year on tour, my game had suffered and I hadn't put any hard work in back home and I only realized that a year later in 2014 I was like hang on I actually need to take time out and actually work on my game and chip and putt and put in the hours and then go and play tournaments when I'm sharp so 
that was a, a big learning curve for me. Because obviously in college, we had practice hours scheduled. We were doing it anyway. I just figured, oh, I can do it on the road. It'll be fine. But that realization came to me. And, and after that, I, I doubled down with a coach in in America. He was my short game coach. Chuck Cook is his name. Works out of UT Golf Club where I practice. And one of the best coaches in the world. And I just figured, you know what? Maybe I can have him look at my full swing as well. I had a South African guy working with me previously, and Chuck was able to have a look at my swing. And within a week, I basically had a, a nice, clear trajectory and a goal that would help me start hitting the ball straight again. I basically lost my drive and my irons, and he helped me out big time. And after those two realizations, I was like, okay, now I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, and I want to do this again. And I had a bunch of fire in my belly, but I was basically in the same situation I was two years into my pro career, I was back to square one. So I had to try and reframe everything and set some new goals and, and try and persevere through all that hard work and that low point, I guess. I actually, from, from talking to, you know, the few golf, like the few professional golfers I've talked to, it seems like that's actually a really common thing for guys who aren't, you know, Brooks Kepka, Dustin Johnson, those kind of guys. It's a, a lot of guys who grind through the minor league tours do just kind of lose their swing at some point. And, and now that you say that, it does sound like just if you're playing too much golf, uh, it, it to me it sounds like it just becomes kind of mechanical. And, uh, you, you know, you're just you probably are not thinking as intensely about every shot. And it just it just sounds like it kind of becomes a drag after a while. Yeah, it's, I mean, you got to be ready for really tough situations if you go into anything on a professional level. I mean, business, sport, any any aspect where you're trying to be the top 1% or 2%, it's going to be difficult. So if you go into it thinking, oh, it's going to be a breeze, it's going to be easy, you really have the wrong mindset. So even those guys at the top, they go through struggles. They may not be amplified in such a way that they're maybe not getting an income or they're not getting access into tournaments. But Jordan Spieth's a good example of that. He's won multiple majors and he's on the cusp of winning the Grand Slam. But everyone keeps on asking me, oh, what's Jordan's issue? What is he going through now? Why is he not playing? I'm like, the guy's still top 50 or 60 in the world. He's, right. he's still in that 0.001% best golfer in the world. So, I mean, just because he's not winning majors consistently doesn't mean he's not playing well. It's, it's a tough game to try and stay at the top. So, for me, it's just a fact of have clear goals, have a clear mindset, and, and know what you're working towards. So many guys kind of get stuck in the idea of, oh, it's perfection. I've got to work on this. I've got to change this. I've got to figure things out but the best lesson i've learned is just to incrementally get better just to be happy with what you have it's taken you where you are and just keep making those little incremental changes and incremental things that'll improve your game and get more experience and then hopefully all of those add up over time they're just basically factors that compound over time and as long as you remember them and remind yourself of them you're never gonna fall backwards so rewinding a little bit, you uh, you played your college golf at the University of Texas and actually won the match that decided the 2012 NCAA title. Uh, how did you end up at uh, at UT from South Africa, and and you know how much do you credit that program with making you you know a, a pro golfer good enough to play on the PGA Tour? Uh, it was an interesting situation. I was born in South Africa and raised there, so I became the number one junior at 16 and number one amateur at 17. So. I either had to turn pro out of high school and play pro golf over there if I wanted to be stimulated or find another another route, and that was college golf. When you look at the PGA Tour golfers, probably 80% of them had played college golf. So I looked at a few universities, saw the rankings, and I actually had a cousin at the University of Texas. He was a professor of music. So it's like a third cousin extended family, but that came into scope, and 
sent the coach an email and ended up flying out to play junior worlds in San Diego. When I was 17, he came out to watch a little bit and a few other coaches were there, but I won junior worlds that week and then flew to Austin the next week, took a visit and was offered a full ride. I visited Arkansas as well and basically decided, okay, Texas is a spot for me. And it was a pretty, pretty easy, I guess, recruiting situation. So many of these kids these days have so many offers in very difficult situations that they can't make a decision for me. It was one of two schools and luckily I chose one that, that really helped me. And when I made it here in 08, I didn't really know what to expect. I traveled to the States a little bit, so I knew what lifestyle was like, but I was a little bit scared, to be honest, when I arrived. I didn't know what the right. situation was going to be like, but I had, I mean, pretty much every skill or any thing I needed to excel as a golfer. We had the academic stuff taken care of, obviously. I set your schedule. Here's what you got to do. And had some tutors to help out if you were struggling, academic advisors to take care of that stuff. And, and that was huge for me because that was another goal of mine was to get a degree and do four years and, and do well as well. I managed to excel in the classroom as well as on the golf <clears throat> golf course. But yeah, it was just a, it's basically a meat grinder. If, if you can't handle an academic schedule and play golf and, and keep it up at the highest level, how do you think you're going to excels a pro because once you turn pro there's a whole bunch of other things that you have to figure out so coach fields was wonderful at explaining things to us and telling us hey guys if you can't handle this now if you can't persevere if you don't want to stay home on a friday night or saturday night to benefit that qualifying round on the weekend then clearly you're not going to travel to the next tournament so get your priorities right get your time management right and and that was the thing for me it just taught me how to use my time wisely how to use the all the opportunities i had i had a wonderful weight room I had a wonderful golf course I had trainers and dietitians and everyone around me that could could do things to benefit my game and I took I you know I probably was the only guy that took every single aspect into account and tried to use those skills to make myself a better player so that that last year that you were there was Jordan Spieth's freshman year so he would have been you know he would have been 18 years old do you have a do you have any good 18 year old Jordan Spieth stories for us uh, not many. I mean, he came in, he was the number one recruit in the country. Obviously, I helped recruit him along with Cody Gribble. We managed to persuade him along with the coaches to come and play at Texas. And when he came in, he was like, oh, okay, I'm the best. Like, chip on the shoulder. <laughs> I was like, hmm, hang on, I'm a senior here. I'm an All-American, <laughs> right. All-American. Like, you're going to have to prove yourself, kid. You can't just waltz in here and think you're going to be number one. But, no, he, he's a great guy, really good kid, really hard worker. And he... I mean, he played really well that freshman year, won a bunch of tournaments and played a few PJ Tour events as well. But he, he did live a college life as well. He, he wanted to obviously turn pro pretty soon after and he figured, hey, he might as well enjoy life. He went out to a few parties. He did the social thing. So I'm sure I, I didn't party much. I'm sure the guys on the team have better stories than I do, but I just remember him doing everything, doing some academic stuff, going out to parties, going out, playing golf, winning tournaments and pretty well-rounded guy it's sad that he only spent one year with us but it would have been cool to see what sort of records he could have broken had he stayed longer i'm sure yeah uh do you have uh do you have any one you know huge memory like one moment that really sticks out from winning that 2012 ncaa title um there were probably two moments like really crux moments for us we played poorly in the second round I mean, they both involved me, obviously. That's the only frame of reference I have. But right. I managed to hole out for Eagle in the 18th hole in the second round. The guys were struggling out on the course. I was too. And eight guys, well, eight teams make it into the match play situation in, in the NCAA finals. So we fell to like 15th or 16th. 
and I hold the shot for Eagle on 18 in the second round. Third round is the final round of stroke play, so it kind of gave us a lift. Everyone was like, okay, now we're in 12th or 13th, one round to go. We've got to jump back inside that top eight. And once that happened, we were all kind of relaxed and like, okay, we got this. We managed to play our way up into second or third, I think, after the stroke play qualifying. And then the final match with Alabama was crazy. Number one and number two ranked teams in the country managed to find their way through into the the final match. And I mean, I didn't see much of the other matches. Obviously, I was busy with mine, but there was so many things going on that came down to the 18th hole with me and Corey Whitsett. And luckily, I'd been through a bit of a, I guess, trial by fire in the conference championship, which was three weeks earlier. I'd lost the team and the individual with three to go. I had a three-shot lead in the individual, and the team had a two-three-shot lead. I finished double, part triple to lose it for us. And thankfully, from that sort of moment, I learned a thing or two on how to control myself and calm myself down. And luckily, made that putt on 18 to to win the first national championship for Texas in 40 years. But those are the two main. Uh, main I guess issues or things that we faced during the week that I, I remember. So kind of a kind of along those same lines. This is actually a, a first for the podcast, but we, we have a guest on who I have won money wagering on. I, I, I bet on you to win the John Deere Classic and a couple of listeners of the show have as well because I asked for questions wow. and a couple of people mentioned you uh, you winning the John Deere Classic. So I, I kind of want to just go inside that moment. Um, you know, did that moment feel as as big as when you won in uh, in Austria and, you know, there was there was definitely a, a period there where it seemed like maybe you were going to get caught, but I think those last four holes you were you were a, a four shots up on everyone else. So kind of just walk me through that that Sunday at the John Deere. Okay, so I mean I I have some blurry memories and some clear vivid memories, but I guess the the biggest takeaway for me was just how calm I was on that Sunday. It was quite strange because the previous few weeks I'd played really well and, and never really pushed through on the weekend. I was in 20th, 30th place and I guess it was Minnesota and Connecticut and a few other Midwest towns but I just struggled to get that focus and that ability to just excel and forget about all the, the money, the rankings. Uh, I was just outside the top 125 on the FedEx list so I had all that weight on my shoulder and excuse me, shoulders and I just didn't excel. So Sunday came along. I was like, okay, I'm four or five shots back. I've got to make a bunch of birdies here. It's a low-scoring course anyway. And, hey, that's all you need to do, seven or eight birdies. And if you don't make any bogeys, you never know what the leaders may do. So I just went out there, made some birdies, kept making birdies. And by the time I got to the back nine, it was like, oh, my gosh, like I'm actually in this tournament. Oh, wait, no, I'm ahead right now. And I I basically blacked out for probably the first 15 holes and then woke up on the 16th tee, I guess. Well, I think I think you made six birdies on the front nine. It was it was a wild performance, but I I, I remember watching and just being like, "This is incredible!" Because uh, like at the same time you were doing that, Russell Henley was doing the same thing. He he actually shot a sixty-one on that Sunday, and yeah. and he he didn't end up getting that close to you, but uh, it was it was just a wild day of golf. Yeah, no, I was I was just trying to keep my head down because I knew someone in the were four or five or six guys between me and the leader. So I figured one of those six, seven guys are going to play well. I mean, I just need to be the guy that's somewhere near them. And I knew my experience having won in Europe multiple times and just being sort of a more experienced player than most of those guys. I knew if I came in with a chance and down the stretch, I could handle my nerves and handle the situation a little bit better than them. Then I'm, I'm sure I could have won the title. And luckily I only really needed to par the last, well, I birdied 17 and par the last hole 
to win by two. But no, it was a it was a fun realization on the 17th hole to know that I have a a comfortable lead and I can just play for par on 18. When you uh, so so that um, that that 17th hole has the bunker there, and uh, you you yeah. made you made birdie out of it. But what were you thinking when that ball? Like you know, how do you keep yourself calm when that ball goes in the bunker there? I mean, the crazy part was the iron shot. I hit driver like 350 down the fairway. I had a seven iron into the green. Yeah, I didn't hit the green. We got the wind wrong. My caddy and I thought it was down off the right and it was out the left, and wind pushed it into the bunker. But as soon as I got there, I'd actually I'd remembered a shot that speed hit back in uh, like 14 or 15 from that bunker. Used the slope to run it back to the hole, and I looked at it and thought that's the only way I can play this shot because if I try and go straight at the swag, I could leave it in the bunker or hit it 15 feet by and have a tough putt. So I just threw it out there, it was slightly on a downslope, threw it out onto the slope behind it, rolled back to, I guess, 10, maybe 12 feet at most. So that was a smart, smart shot in my opinion and gave me a chance to make that 10, 12 footer. And luckily it slipped in the left corner. I barely, I mean, actually Nick Watney in front of me had a, like a 450 degree lip out. And when I saw that, I was like, wow, that's not the thing I want to see before I've got to make one. But luckily mine caught the edge and, and went in. Yeah, it was that. That was uh, it was uh, that. Just was uh, was a great day in golf. Was that your was that your favorite round of golf as a pro, or do you have a a round or a moment that sticks out as you know this was the best part of being a pro golfer? Uh, no, probably not. I mean, that's I, I enjoy the intense moments, but often the intense moments are not the the most enjoyable. Probably social round with Kelly Slater. I played at uh, Cypress Point with him and two other members that are friends of mine and. That was probably the funnest I ever, funnest moment I had on the course playing with Kelly and two other guys at Cyprus. I mean, it doesn't really get any better than that. But tournament rounds is probably yeah, probably up there in the top five of my favorite rounds that I've played. Have Have you played? I I didn't I didn't I should have prepared a little bit better. Have you played a tournament round with Tiger Woods? No, not yet. I've been in the same field as him multiple times, and I actually played behind him at the Honda Classic and. Walked up on the 18th tee and, oh, Tiger's standing here and managed to chat to him a little bit on the tee box, but never played a tournament round or a practice round with him. So you, you have played all four major championships. Uh, you know, what what yeah. is it like inside the ropes those week versus, you know, the Greenbrier or, or the John Deere class? You know, how different does it feel standing over those tee shots, over those putts? You know, is it, is it just a, a whole different world? Or, or once you're playing, is it kind of just like any other round of golf? No, it's, I mean, as a young a young pro playing in those tournaments, my first major was, I guess, two and a half years ago. Um, it's it's a totally different situation. It's, I mean, tons of fans, tons of stuff going on. The logistics of just getting to the putting green or getting to the clubhouse is, is crazy. You're walking up and down and over and around, and, and those things take a lot of getting used to. But I struggled, I guess, my first few majors. I made my cut at the PGA two years ago. That was the first cut I made, and I think I made four of nine cuts in majors now, somewhere around there. But it's something that you have to get over, and you have to just figure, hey, this is a normal event. It's just a regular tour event. So winning that John Deere was actually probably the most helpful thing to my performances in majors because the next week was the Open Championship and flew straight from Illinois into Ireland and had to play it. Royal Port Rush. Luckily, I'd played the course before. I didn't have to do too much prep, but I got there. I was like, hey, I'm on top of the world. I just won a PGA Tour event. I'm playing great. Conditions are totally different here. No one plays well the week after a win, so there's no way I'm going to do well. And that actually calmed me down, and it got me to think of, hey, there's no pressure. You're just playing golf, and I played really well that week. I was in the top 10 pretty much all week and 
had a tough finish when that weather came in on Sunday and finished whatever, 20th or 25th, I guess it was. But no, it was a totally different experience having been there as a as a PGA Tour winner and having that confidence and, and not looking at it as such a major event, like, oh my gosh, this is a huge tournament and I got to play well and so much better than everybody else. In the At the end of the day, it's just a golf tournament. So I think that, that experience at the Open is definitely going to help me moving forward. What's uh? Did you did you get a chance to? Uh, I guess I don't know. Rory is like my my favorite guy to watch. Uh, you, did you have a chance to to talk to him or or just you know what was the experience like of of that crowd with Rory that week in in Port Rush? Like it just it was such a wild story. And then watching him try and charge back on uh, on Friday. Just do you have any do you have any insight into that situation? This is a uh, obviously uh, if you don't, that's okay. We were opposite ends of the draw, so I didn't I didn't see much of him, but I, I did see that. That ending where he made the birdies and tried to push him to make the cut. That was pretty crazy to see him come back and make all those birdies. I was watching it on TV as I was going out on the Friday. But no, it was it was cool. The cooler thing than that was probably the Irish Open, the previous tournament I'd played there. It was back in 2012, the first year I'd played pro golf and got an invite into the Irish Open. And I'd never seen crowds like that in my life. I'd played probably 10 or 12 pro tournaments in South Africa already. But they just packed in all these people into Royal Port Rush, and I mean, it was the coolest experience of my life. And then you get the Open there, and they managed to multiply the fans even more. Right. So yeah, that was probably one of the coolest majors I'd played in. Just the amount of people in the sport. The Irish public are really knowledgeable on golf, and they they really did a great job in hosting us and making us feel welcome. If uh, if you could pick one of the majors to win, you know, you say, okay, I got I got these four major championships. This is the one I, I would like to win in my career. Which one would you pick? The Open Championship. That's the one that I, I yeah, it's the best. Growing up in South Africa, that's what we watch on TV. I remember watching Ernie and Retief and tons of those South Africans going over there. And Ernie's won a couple, obviously, but it's just. I don't know. Maybe if I was a little more US centric, I would have said the Masters. But for me, the the Open Championship is definitely the one that. I mean, I hope to win multiple majors, but that'd be the one right. if I was given the chance. Yeah, it's the best. It, it's the best to watch on TV. It has you know some of the most iconic holes. I and and the field is larger. Like I, I think the fact that you know the eighty ninety guys play in the Masters and you know at least yeah. one hundred and twenty play in the Open Championship. I do. I like. I think that is the best tournament as well. Yeah, it's, you've also got weather. So there's sometimes when you're at one end of the draw and you literally don't have a chance of winning the tournament. The weather could be so bad on your side that you're totally, totally screwed basically to win. So that's another thing that you have to have to battle that weather. If you get lucky, if you don't get lucky, it's just there's so much that goes into it that makes it a really interesting way of winning a major, I guess. All right, a couple, a couple people when I ask for questions for the show, they want to know. Where did the long sleeves come from? Uh, Joel, Joel Damon told us that his like uh, the bucket hat that he wore was just an accident. He forgot his hat at the course one day and got a, a bucket hat, uh, you know, just kind of by accident and wore it for a round. Uh, is that the same thing with you for the long sleeves, or is it like uh, you know is that important to your game? Um, it was just uh, I guess a of when I was practicing, I figured let me wear the sleeves and not have to put sunscreen on. And then I thought, well, this is kind of comfortable. It makes me feel a little more athletic and don't have to put sunscreen on and have it drip into my hand. So I figured, oh, let's do a few tournaments. And and then I figured, hey, people start recognizing me wearing these things, and it's one way I can differentiate myself from other people if you're looking from a distance. Oh, that's Fratelli because he's got the sleeves on right now. So that's something I'll keep going forward as long as people see it as a 
a trademark or a differentiator from the other pros. So that was the main thing. You know, obviously just keeping the sun off my skin. We were in the sun all day. So I want to try and prolong my career and not have skin cancer later down the line. Yeah, I guess I've never even thought about that. But yeah, golfers, they, they, they're just out in the sun 50 hours a week pretty much. Yeah, it's, I mean, I'm on the course six, seven hours a day at least. You multiply that over years and years and years. And before you know it, you're definitely making yourself a target for skin cancer. So uh, just doing a little bit of research, I found that uh, you were on the record as working with a, a sports psychologist by the name of Jay Brunza, who also worked with uh, Tiger Woods. How many players yeah. on tour do you think have uh, you know, had help, uh, consulted with sports psychologists on the mental side of their game, and, and how has Jay influenced your game? I don't know how many guys use it. I feel like there are two types of golfers on tour. There's some that are open to working with a sports psychologist or mental coach, and then others that are like, stay away. I, yeah, I don't never, want ever. to know anything about that. So I, I will say that if I had to put a number on, I'd say probably 50, 60% of guys do. But for me, Jay was a huge help. I, I got introduced to him in college by Coach Fields at Texas, and I worked with him. I had a few questions on basically elite performance and trying to focus and all that stuff. And, and Jay could answer those questions right away. He has a clinical background in the Navy and has a ton of, I guess, experience just working with guys with PTSD and substance abuse. And so he's got tons of techniques that he can help help you excel and help you cope with stress and anxiety and then basically peak performance. So I, I've worked with Jay now for over 10 years, and it's something that has definitely played a huge part in my golf. It's not something I'm going to say, oh, it's the biggest thing or it's the greatest thing and everyone should do it, but... I know I delved into it and I've given him a lot of my time and he's given me tons of his time and that I guess those efforts have definitely proved to be fruitful in my career so far and it's something that I'm not going to forget about and I keep on telling myself I've got to do more of it. I've got to fly out and CJ and do as much as I can. Yeah, well, there we go. I, I think uh, I think all of that stuff is pretty useful. And I, I'm, I am surprised that more people, uh, you know, I, I would be surprised that half the tour is like, oh, you know, I'm not that interested in that because, you know, golf is, it, it's such a, an insanely mental game. You know, I'm, I'm not any good. I'm like, a, I'm like a 17 handicap. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like if I had a better handle on, you know, how to approach shots, how to like, just maintain calm, I feel like that would be, you know, two, two, three shots around or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it, it it applies to all facets of life. I mean, you got guys now that are top businessmen that have life coaches or have professional coaches or um, big into that side of things, listen to a lot of podcasts and stuff on, I guess, mental approaches and meditation and stuff like that. And even your personal life, if you're going to go and meditate and work on that stuff, it, it only breeds good things into your daily life, your general life. So it's not only helped me on the golf course, it's helped me outside of that and just the way I see the world and how I deal with stress and anxiety and everyone faces that. It's just how you deal with it and how you manage to focus on the things that are really important in your life. Yeah. Uh, okay. We, we ask all, all pro athletes, all, all golfers this, what do you think about the idea of course history being used to uh, project things going forward? So, so the argument in the, the golf investment community, if you will, is, you know, guys who, guys who crush on uh, one specific course that should be really weighted into how you expect them to perform there in the future so you know tiger woods at augusta bubba watson at the travelers there are there are hundreds of examples of this you know what do you think about the idea of just being you know really comfortable on one course or you know a course suiting your eye just kind of that whole theory of of doing well at specific golf courses 
Yeah, it's the old saying of horses for courses. That's, I guess, a European reference. Maybe it's not a thing here in the U.S., but for me, that's a minor factor. I, I mean, I look at my schedule and I try and turn my schedule around training, number one, so off the course, working out in the gym, being relaxed and ready to go at a series of events where there's two, three, four events in a row. And then, obviously, the next thing would probably be how familiar I am with those golf courses. Well, actually, no, number two would actually be playing in the biggest tournaments and the ones that have the best world ranking points. Number three would be what courses I enjoy. So I would say that's probably, I don't know how guys weight that, but it's probably an overweighting in my opinion. Form is obviously a really tough thing to predict, but in my mind, that's the bigger predictor of anything. If you watch a guy, he may finish 45th that specific week that you're looking at and you go, oh man, he's no good, but let's look at the previous weeks. You've gone miscut, miscut, 60th, 55th, 45th. That guy's probably trending in the right direction and, and figuring out his game. So that would be the guy that you would want to look at and see persevere and play well that following week. But for me, courses, eh, I mean, unless it's a drastic change from maybe European to its PJ Tour event, that's where you could find some benefits. But in my mind, you're going to play well. You're going to play well in any golf course. You'll figure it out. As long as you're an experienced player that's been on tour for a number of years, you'll be able to figure out a golf course and excel and play well if your game is in good shape. What is your What is your favorite golf course that you've ever played? Is it Is it one you know your home course in South Africa, the UT Austin course? What's your What is your number one golf course? So my go-to answer for that is TPC Sawgrass. I haven't played there since the OS. Seven, no, 08, 08 Junior Players Championship. It was the first time the AJGA hosted an event there, and it was just tons of fun. Really tough golf course. It's changed a lot since then, I guess 11 years since I played it, but I just have memories of it testing my game and just being something I'm like, wow, this is a PGA Tour venue. The players is known as the fifth major, and it's someplace that I hope to be back as a professional. And It's going to be interesting for me going back there next year and playing it for the first time, and I guess it'll be 12 years then, but I just have memories of it just testing every single aspect of my game. And I didn't play very well in that tournament. I finished like 25th or something in the AJGA event. But that's a course I want to go back to and something that, yeah, that's definitely my favorite course in, in my memory. That's actually that's one of my uh, that's one of my favorite courses to to pose to people when they when they talk about you know playing golf on a professional course because I I think that TPC Sawgrass for like a bad recreational golfer might be one of the hardest courses that they play on the road because of all the water and and how perfect you'd have to be on so many of your tee shots I think that's like the number one course I think a recreational golfer would just shoot like one thirty at it, it looks so yeah. intimidating on TV. Yeah, I think I think that's the truth. I mean, I went there and I was young. I was 17. I'd not really figured out my game entirely, but I looked at this and I was like, guys are shooting in the 60s around here. I mean, how like I've got so much work to do to get to that point where I can comfortably break par on this course and get into the 60s even. But yeah, you're right about that. It's I love Pete Dye design courses as well. So Austin Country Club is another. We have probably 10 or 12 tour stops that are Pete Dye design. So whenever we get to a course like that, I know straight away. This is a Pete Dye design. I can see it in his design features, and maybe I should just generally say Pete Dye golf courses are my favorite golf courses. Yeah. Uh, another another classic question that we have is, uh, you know, are there certain types of, of green grass that you or, or other tour players feel comfortable on or, or kinds that make life more difficult? Uh, you know, a stat that people love to, to throw around in the in the golf community is, you know, how guys do on, on bent grass or Bermuda grass or those sorts of things. 
Um, there's definitely a benefit in growing up on a certain type of grass. So bent grass is known as being very true and the roll is good and you don't have to worry about reading the grass as much as you do the contours. But I took a while to learn how to chip out of Bermuda once I moved to the States. Yeah, we didn't have much in South Africa where I was from, but chipping out of it was really difficult. And then reading putts, you have to take the grain into account. Luckily, the courses we play have really quick greens and the grain is typically minimize they, they cut them so low that the grain's not going to do too much to it it affects the speed obviously on longer putts but not so much the break of the short ones but i guess if you've played five ten years of pro golf and you've been in the states and you've, you've seen enough setups on bermuda you won't find much of a difference but it was definitely a tough thing for me in college to make that switch and chuck cook helped me out a lot with how to chip out of the bermuda rough it's not something you want to attempt coming from south africa playing off a perfect light pretty much every time do you think that that, uh, you know, ba- like basically growing up and, and playing on two different types of grass, do you think that actually is like a like a big thing for you, like in terms of being an advantage on the PGA Tour? Because there are a lot yeah, of guys who sure. have only done the for one. Sure. Well, I, I can speak to the advantage of playing on different grasses around the world. I grew up in Johannesburg where Kikuyu grass is the number one go-to and greens are bent grass. So I had that. That baseline is simple and easy to get used to because the ball sits up in Kikuyu. And it rolls pure on bent when you're putting. So that was an easy baseline to get used to. But then as I traveled, played in Japan, played in America, and saw a lot more bent, oh, Bermuda grass and a lot more overseed. I'd never seen overseed in South Africa, but you see that here on the PGA Tour venues a lot. And it just takes time to get used to that. So the four years in college basically prepared me for, I guess, four or five years removed from college, coming back to the States and playing these courses. So when I got here, it wasn't a major adjustment for me it was just um going back to memories now of college and trying to figure it out but i saw a crazy situation was actually in that ncaa final and i managed to beat Corey Whitsett. he had a chip on the 18th hole that he literally went straight under he was on the downslope at riviera on the 18th and sitting up kukuya rough and i saw him opening it up his coach walked by and said oh what do you think we just bounce in the fringe and try and roll it up onto the green and he said no coach what if i open it up and try and slide under and hit a high flop shot and I knew from my days in South Africa, you don't do that on Kikuyu because you can go straight under it very easily. And I heard that. I'm like, wow, I hope this guy goes for that shot. And in the end, I was right. And his coach was right. He just slipped straight under it and didn't even hit the ball, just completely flubbed it. So um, things like that, you only learn by playing in those types of grasses and those situations. And I guess that was an extreme example because it ended up costing them the national championship. There, uh, there's another another thing that I, I love to talk about is just like the psychology of putting because it, it's proven to be one of those things that, you know, guys who are excellent ball strikers, uh, Lucas Glover, uh, Byung Han An, uh, yourself, uh, really good, always gaining strokes tee to green. Uh, that's That stuff tends to stay consistent, you know, round to round, tournament to tournament, whereas putting is, you know, putting can just go crazy. Some week you make every eight footer and some weeks you, you miss every eight footer. What like how much skill do you think there is in putting compared to uh you know to iron play and do you think it's somewhat like if some guys just went to the putting green and and worked on it every day for for two months do you think that they could make themselves you know half a stroke better per round or is it just one of those things that guys just have a gift for and some don't um that's a tricky tricky question i think Everybody has the ability to putt well on any given day, but that, you're right. That's the stat that has the most variance between probably top to bottom performance. 
I am typically a good ball striker, so I'm probably the wrong guy to ask about that. But in my opinion, from what I've seen from the better putters, it's there's somewhat an innate quality to, to making putts and reading greens and understanding that stuff. But you can also learn it. If you get the right coach or the right experience growing up, you can learn to make putts. Everyone said to me, oh, putting stats are no good this year. This was the previous season. But I managed to win and have one of the best putting weeks of my of my career so it's something that I'm working on consistently and trying to figure out ways to putt better but I would just say that I mean you look at someone like Spieth he's always been pretty good he just good makes on the every putt it just, he, he yeah, just, yeah he just makes them all yeah we would have putting contests at UT and he would win most of them but the crazy thing was when it got to like crunch time and he needed to make one whether it was to win the qualifier or get into a playoff or more often than not, he makes it. And that's that's the most important thing, in my opinion, is the the putting down the stretch, the important time when you need to make a putt and your knees are shaking and your hands are shaking. And, and those are the times when it really comes into focus because lots of guys can have sort of average putting and then they get into a pressure situation. They don't make it. They don't end up winning a tournament. They all of a sudden start questioning it. So I think a more important factor is how you putt in a pressure situation. I've always thought my my pressure putting and my pressure performance has been really good, even though my baseline putting is is not as good as most guys. Do you think that uh, Do you think most guys putt better, like on the on the putting green, than they do on a you know like a, a Sunday of a tournament? Do you just think it's it's one of those things where where some guys can just make it when no one's watching, but then uh, you know then they they get a lot worse when the lights are on. I mean, yeah. When you... If you've ever had any money on the line trying to make a six-footer or an eight-footer on the last hole, it's yeah, it's, it's so much more deal. difficult. It's reverse for us. It's, I mean, we're making money, obviously, but that pressure is amplified by hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, if you had to do that, or even just have some kind of uh, shot, give someone an adrenaline shot in the arm, and tell them to go and make a putt, it's the same thing. You physically can't execute because your hands and your body and everything shaking. So, it's it's an override feature that you have to work on. And that's where the mental stuff comes in calming your body down and trying to get rid of that adrenaline and trying to get rid of all that excitement but it's just physiological hey if you're shaking it's going to be hard to move that putter and control that putter head on a really minuscule scale yeah that's uh it's just i i find that i find the psychology of golf you know just uh just so fascinating because it, it also is one of those things where it's you know it's really the only sport where you can watch it on tv and and go out and be like well i could replicate i could replicate that shot if i had 10 tries and you know what what separates what separates you guys from everyone else in the world is that uh you know even even your misses are good basically yeah i mean there's some shots like there's some shots that i can't hit dustin johnson can hit a 270 yard three wood and stop it on the green I, I can't physically do that I don't have enough club head speed or spin to do it but most golfers can put them in a situation and give them enough tries they can pull off a shot that we can pull off and that's the amazing thing about our game is it brings people back every time because they go oh I hit that one good shot and I should be able to do it every time and then all of a sudden they're hooked on this game because they had one good shot in one round and I guess it's uh, it's an amazing feature of golf and one of the things that draws people to the game yeah, as long as you as long as you flush one iron shot per round and you stick it to five feet, you're you're gonna come out and play again. There's just because there you you always are convinced, you know that uh, you know that that seventy two is out there for you as as long as you keep trying enough. Yeah, that one swing out of one hundred and fifty that I had the whole day, that one swing was not the anomaly. It was all the other one hundred and forty nine swings that I made that were the anomaly, and that one shot is how I 
should normally hit it. But that's what I tell people. I say don't play golf because once you get that bug, you're going to waste a whole bunch of time and come out to the golf course. But I, I mean, I love the game and I would never say that. I said tongue in cheek, but that's, that's the way most people see it as amateur golfers. Yeah. All right. Well, Dylan, thank you so much for your time. This was, uh, this was phenomenal and, and everyone is gonna, everyone's gonna love it. This was, this was really good. Cool. I had a good time. Hopefully you guys can get some more questions for me next time and delve deeper into some stuff. Yeah. Uh, we would, uh, we would love to, uh, to get some more questions and have you back on. Do you have, uh, do you have anything you want to promote social media, charity, anything like that? No, not really. I just hope everyone enjoyed the, the chat and follow me on Instagram or Twitter. Um, I'm pretty active on there. I give a good look inside the tour and behind the scenes stuff. pretty much my, my strong point on there and hopefully you guys will enjoy it. Ever wondered how a book gets made into a movie? Or how to master the art of cooking? Either way, we've got you covered with the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast. I'm Alan Nevins, a literary agent and talent manager. And I'm Joey Santos, a columnist and celebrity chef. On our podcast, we're going to be serving you a fresh perspective of the entertainment industry alongside our favorite celebrity guests. As we like to say, we don't dish, we serve. Listen and follow Two Guys from Hollywood on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll talk at you soon. Hey everyone, it's Michelle Williams, and I love being able to share my story with you on my podcast, Checking In with Michelle Williams, where my guests and I, we get real as we share the ups and downs of our mental health journeys, and I'd love for you to join me. Hey, it's going to be your church and your turn up. So listen to Checking In with Michelle Williams every Tuesday, a part of the Black Effect on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.